0: Lord Jesus, we do exalt you as the risen, reigning king of all of the kings and the Lord of all of the lords. And we thank you that as sovereign one to whom our hearts and our lives belong, that we can trust you with those lives. And we pray now, Lord, that as we turn towards your word, that you would show us not just what it means that you are king, but what it means that your word says that we are seated in heaven with you and that we as your people share in your word, share in your reign. And so, Lord, we ask you as we open your word that you would give us awakened imaginations, that you would move on us by your Holy Spirit and speak to us about your purpose or our identity and our calling. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I invite you to have a seat, church family. We've been probably six, seven, eight weeks now preaching a short series on our identity in Jesus Christ. So when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're born again or new into the kingdom of God. And God calls us not to improve our old life, but to let it die. He tells us that that life dies and that we're given a brand new life in Jesus Christ. And he tells us a lot of things about that life. He speaks identity to us. And so we've been saying, what does the Lord say about you and about I as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ and as his people in this world? What is our individual identity? And this morning we're going to be talking a little bit about what's our identity as a body or as a group. We're going to look at a theme that actually moves from Genesis to Revelations. So, uh, my kids, sometimes after dinner, they say, can we say so-and-so's baptism verse? And when they get to my mind, they say, Dad, can we say your baptism verse? And I say, sure. And they say, what is it? I say, Genesis 1 to Revelation 20. 2. <laughs> oh, we're not going to read it all, but we are going to, we're going to, we're going to look at a theme, and I'm going to want you to guess it as we read through five or six scriptures that moves from Genesis to Revelation. And so I just want to say something about that before I start to read and preach God's Word. And that's this, what I'm going to preach this morning is going to be a sermon that could be six or seven or eight sermons and and maybe should be at some point, but this will be like the 30,000 foot view, okay, looking at the central identity that God gives to us as his people. So because we're going to be looking at a number of passages, they're going to be on the screen instead of paging through our Bibles. I'm going to start with Genesis 1. 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. In Exodus 19, verses 4 and 5, after the human family has plunged itself into sin and ruin and rebellion, and God has said, I'm not going to destroy them, I'm going to redeem them. And he's called Abraham and from him a group of people, and he's redeemed them from slavery in Egypt, and he is about to unite himself to them in what would look like an ancient Near Eastern marriage ceremony at Mount Sinai. Before that happens, he says these words to them. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession although the whole earth is mine you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation flipping ahead to the new testament where peter's writing to a circular letter to believers in five different provinces in Asia Minor. And Peter says to them, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. In Revelation 1 5b and 6, where John is writing, also a circular letter to seven churches in Asia, in Asia, the province of Asia, which would have been one of the provinces Peter was writing to. John writes in doxology or praise form, he says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And then a few chapters later in Revelation 5, 9, and 10, where John is sharing a vision of the throne room of heaven, which he's been um, allowed to see. He speaks these words about angels who are worshiping Jesus. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Anybody want to hazard a guess? at what the identity statement is, or close to? Don't be shy. Kingdom of priests, good, or a royal priesthood. Kingdom of priests or a royal priesthood. I want to start by sharing a short story with you. When I was a senior in high school, one of my favorite sports was volleyball, and... Um, was invited to participate in an elementary Christian school tournament that was going to take place at a school nearby, and would I help administrate it? And I so said yes, I got a couple of days off school to do this, so that was even better. But uh, I showed up the morning of the tournament and was then asked, hey, would you mind switching? And instead of administrating, would you mind coaching a team? Uh, one of the schools from from uh, out in the country, decided to take two full teams. And so could you coach the B team? I said, sure. So I met these kids. And uh, the first thing I found out was that they were called the B team for a reason. This school had decided that they wanted to win. And so they put all their best 10 players on the A team. And I got the leftovers that wanted to play, maybe liked to play, but didn't have Nearly as much skill, and you could tell just by the way that they carried themselves as we met each other that they uh, did not expect to win anything. They were kind of, you know, like their body language said, "We are not winners. We are not. We we were not picked. We are not expected to succeed." And and so I just uh, started before that first game to uh, coach and to encourage and to give them little tips from what I. I had learned in my years of volleyball and I did it with all my heart because I love I love kind of where coaching and encouragement meets and I love volleyball and uh, and the most amazing thing happened. They, these kids, as I started to coach them, started to perk up a little bit and started to like give more in, intense effort and started to actually play better. And we lost the first game, but by a little bit and then we won and then we won. And then we won again and we made the playoffs and we won and we won and we made it all the way to the final where we lost in the final game. But out of 12 teams, we came second place. And I, I think about that, um, that story often because what I, what I learn as I reflect back and look back at that, that story is that identity shapes behavior. If you think you're something or someone, you act that way If you think you're somebody or someone else, you act that way. They came in thinking, we're not here to win, we can't win, we can't succeed. And they left with a totally renovated identity. Because someone had spoken into them, you can win. You are worthy not only of um, my time and my energy, my excitement, my encouragement, my uh affections, I, you know, loved them over two days, you can win. And it totally changed them. And I think about that story often and the fact that identity shapes behavior when I think about the church. And I wonder to myself, what would it look like if the body of Christ, and I'm not talking about just us here at Gold Avenue Church, I'm talking about the whole church. If the body of Christ really fully took into their hearts and believed what God says about you and I. A royal priesthood. A kingdom of priests. You see yourself as royal royalty? You you think of yourself as a priest? I mean, try and say this say this after me for a minute and just see how it goes. I am royalty. I am a priest. Does that sound or feel a little strange on your lips? I I imagine that that would have sounded really strange for the believers in Asia and Asia Minor where Peter and Paul were writing these letters to too. These believers are mostly Gentiles, which means they didn't have the Old Testament. They didn't have the history of God speaking this identity to them. These believers are struggling with many different things that uh, we hear. Some of them are struggling with apathy, with lukewarmness, with loss of their first love. Some of them are struggling with immorality, with fully removing themselves from the life and the world that they got saved out of. And the angel of the Lord is having to tell them, turn away that woman Jezebel, this is one of the churches in Revelation, and all her immorality. Some of them are struggling with false teaching. The angel says to one church, yet this I have against you, you hold to the practice of the Nicolaitans, whoever they were. But they're churches that are full of struggles. And on top of that, they're churches that are That are persecuted. So all of these churches have just come through a huge round of persecution under Nero, who was the emperor of Rome when it burned, and Nero blamed the Christians for the fire that burned Rome, scapegoat him, and everybody used the scapegoat, and that unleashed a wave of persecution across the whole empire. At the time these letters are written, that wave has died down, but Revelation tells us another one is coming. It's going to get worse. It's part of the message of Revelation. And we know from church history that Emperor Domitian takes the throne and unleashes a wave of persecution that's way worse than what came under Nero. So we've got churches with apathy and lukewarmness and loss of first love and sexual sin and false doctrine and persecution that probably, in many regards, are just trying to hold on. And Peter and John are saying to them, you are a royal priesthood. You are kings and priests. Now, kings govern and rule. They're people of influence. They're people who lead and who shape. And priests in that world as well were people of influence. And Peter and John are saying to them, this little bands of believers, seemingly being crushed by the Roman Empire, you Reign, and you rule, and you have influence. Okay. Similarly for us, although we're not experiencing physical persecution, I want to name that I think we're experiencing increased hostility from the culture around us. That the church is increasingly being labeled as archaic, narrow, bigoted, superstitious, and in many places, a relic of the past. Maybe not so much in West Michigan. But our brothers and sisters around the country live in places where the church isn't even considered uh, something that you would turn to at all. Anything of importance. From within the church, we face similar challenges of false teaching, particularly around the issue of human sexuality. It's ravaging the church right now. We face apathy. We face lukewarmness. We face contingents of Christians who won't read the Bible, who call themselves followers of Jesus, and yet won't make a daily habit of nurturing their lives on God's Word. That's a problem. We face loss of first love. People who live religiously but don't want to worship God. Not to mention all of the challenges of just trying to be faithful as students and moms and dads and grandpas and grandmas in a sin-stained world. And yet God says to us, here this morning, you are kings and priests. You are a kingdom of priests. You are royal priesthood. God says you are people who govern and who influence, and who shape reality. And so I want to say to us, we better ask, what does God mean when he says that we're royal priesthood? Well, we better look back at the Old Testament, because these are Old Testament pictures that are being imported to give New Testament meaning through Jesus Christ. And so when we look back at the Old Testament, I'm just going to summarize really briefly here. We see three ministries of a priest. I'm going to deal with the priest first first one of the priests responsibility was to minister to the Lord or before the Lord and so the priest's job was to keep the fire on the altar burning keep the fire burning and to put incense onto the fire this is a picture of worship priest priestly responsibility is worship of the Lord it's to be this Point on earth that recognizes the glory and the goodness and the holiness and the worth and the majesty of God and is lifting it up. Worship the Lord. Second thing that priests were responsible for was offering sacrifices on behalf of themselves and for the sins of the people. So priests are to be intercessors. They mediate between heaven and earth. They lift up the concerns of a broken people in a broken world to holy, loving, forgiving God and say, Have mercy, God. Move, God. Forgive, God. Priests are intercessors. So priests are worshipers. Priests are intercessors. And third, priests were charged with carrying the presence of God. So you might remember this story that comes out of Second Samuel where David uh, has been finally enthroned as king and he decides that he's going to go and carry the Ark of the Covenant from where it had been back to Jerusalem. And that uh, Ark is where God put his presence between the, the angels over top of the Ark. It's to be in the tabernacle of the temple. And it wasn't, so he's going to go get it. And so he readies a cart, and his men go to bring it back. And they're having a party. 30,000 people are out dancing. It's a huge celebration for the nation. And the cart slips, and Uzzah touches it, and he's dead. Why was he dead? Because they didn't follow God's order. God had a way for things to be done. And he said, priests are the people who are responsible for carrying my presence the place of my presence so priests are worshipers, priests are intercessors who lift up the, the concerns of the world to God and priests carry the presence of God wherever they go kings I want to look at uh, passage in Deuteronomy 17 for a moment Israel's about to enter the land that God's giving them and Moses is giving instructions before they go in. And he says, when you enter the land, you're going to ask for a king. And so, um, he gives a few instructions and then he says this. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. and By this law, he means the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. Taken from that of the Levitical priests, it's to be with him, and he's to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God, and follow carefully all the words of this law, and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites, and turn from the law, to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. So the king's given authority to rule a group of people, but the picture is that the rule is meant to be bringing God's order into that group of people on earth as it is in heaven. God recorded for this this group of people that he's called to represent him to the nations, and he's given him this law, and he said, this is how you're going to show who I am. This is how you're going to reveal my character by living this way. And so the priest, in order to govern and display God's character, first has to embody that character within himself. He's got to take that word of God, And he's got to write the whole thing out and so meditate on it and so let it shape him day in and day out that he embodies that righteousness of God that he's calling people to as he governs. So again, the picture is authority given by God for bringing his order on earth, meaning also his character being displayed among the people. So let's put these two together. What's a picture when you put these kings and these priests together? What's a royal priesthood? Royal priesthood is God's people given God's authority to bring his reign and his rule on earth through righteousness, righteous living, worship, intercession, and carrying the presence of God wherever they go. In other words, God's got a place for each of us in our lives to have power and to have influence. And I want us to hear real quickly that this is rooted in the Genesis one twenty-seven to 28 passage that I read at the beginning. It's rooted right in the beginning in creation where God says, subdue, rule. In other words, I'm giving you authority to bring order, but it is what? flowing out of the image of God. You're created in my image. In other words, you're to reflect what I am like to this world. You're to, you're to bring that order in accordance with who I am as my image bearers. So again, God's got a place for each of our lives to have power and influence and to shape reality for God's glory. I want to talk about that for a few minutes but before we do that we've got to acknowledge something and that is that not only did the whole series of kings fail miserably to reflect God's glory but that we also have. That we first and foremost have chosen to reflect the sinful desires that are within our own hearts. And so much so that when Isaiah in chapter 59 is expressing God's heart, Isaiah says, I looked, he says from beginning to end of this chapter, I looked and there was nobody to show me justice. There's no justice. There is no righteousness. There is nobody on the earth that is reflecting the character of God. When I think about this, I think about my experience in China of learning to... Ride the bus system, and uh, you know. I at first I pulled up to the, I walked up to the bus stop, and I realized that there was no line. There was just a big swarm of people, and then when the bus came, everybody made a mad dash for the bus to get on. And as I uh, tried to get my way onto the bus, I realized that senior citizen women were willing to elbow me out of the way to get onto the bus. And I thought, you know, I know another culture. I know another way. And I could reflect that here. I could, I could wait patiently. And I could try to find my place in line. And I could not jostle people to get my way onto this bus. But then you know what happened? The desire within my own heart to not miss the bus. Got the better of me. And I thought, if they can give it, they can take it. And I jumped right in. Okay, it's kind of what Isaiah's is saying. We've all joined in with the world. We've all fallen. We've all stopped reflecting the glory and the goodness and the character and the righteousness of God on earth. There wasn't anybody, he said. And so then he follows it up and he said, The Lord says through Isaiah, but my own arm will work salvation for me. It so matters to me, in other words, God says, I so love this world that I'm not going to leave it without a witness to who I am. I am not going to leave it to, to blow up on its own. I am not going to leave it to, to, to ruin. I am going to work salvation for me. And so God becomes human and is born in the person of Jesus Christ and worshipped as a king from birth. And the king grows up and begins, after his baptism and in the power of the Holy Spirit, to uproot and to overturn the kingdom of darkness at every turn. He drives out demons. He heals people. He restores lives. He preaches the good news of the kingdom of God, the reign of God in and through him, now on earth. He embodies what we couldn't. He proclaims what we weren't. And he advances the kingdom of God on earth. And he's killed for it. And he's crucified as a king. And yet, in that same crucifixion, he's also making intercession as a king Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And he's not just killed and died and buried. But he is resurrected as king, having defeated death. And Hebrews says he ever lives to intercede for us. Now there's something about this Jesus pattern that I've just laid out for us that's really important and I want us to notice because it's going to impact what it means for you and I that we are a king and a priest or that we're a royal priesthood. Because our lives are to be conformed to the pattern of Jesus. And that something comes out of the Revelation 5 passage where the bigger context is this, that when it says there was nobody worthy to open the scroll, that scroll is a title deed to the earth. To whom does the earth belong? Who has authority to open this scroll? And to whom... To whom will the earth belong? And as John is having this vision, he's told that the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome. And then as he turns around to view the lion, what he sees is not a conquering lion, but a slain and risen lamb. In other words, the one who reigns as king achieved his kingship through suffering and atoning death, through suffering love. So that Jesus' pattern for reigning, and the reason that he does reign, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, is because he emptied himself. He gave up all divine privilege And he was obedient unto death. He reigns because of his righteousness. He reigns and is worthy to reign because he never once yielded to sin and temptation. When Paul discusses this in Romans chapter 5, he says, sin used to reign, producing death. But then in chapter 5, verse 17, he says, For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more Will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Can you hear the the link or the pattern here? That it is through righteousness... Christ's gift to us, but then our response to that gift by really allowing our lives and our characters to be conformed or renewed in the image of God that causes us to reign. It's righteousness that brings about the reign of God. Is this making sense? Yeah. He doesn't just reign because all power and authority belongs to him. Power and authority are given to him. He earned them through his righteousness. And it says, we live righteous and holy lives, that the reign of God is expressed on earth. And this is why this is why Paul or uh, why Peter and John could write to these these Christians all over Asia and tell them, even as they're being crushed, that they reign. Because they aren't giving in to the world's system of values. They aren't letting the world's thinking and the world's acting and the world's believing and the world's behavior shape them. They're letting the spirit of the risen Jesus who's joined himself to them and who dwells within them reign in them. And they are reigning then in righteousness. Because their lives are being conformed to the Jesus pattern. It does not matter what happens to them. The truth is they're reigning... In righteousness. Make sense? Okay, what I want us to see here is that there's a... There's a uh, I, I believe that not only does God want our lives to be conformed to the pattern of the suffering love of Jesus, but that it is the revelation to our hearts of the suffering love of Jesus that leads us to want to grow in righteousness and in the ministries of worship and intercession and carrying the presence of God in other words if our own hearts have not come to this place of absolute marveling before Jesus Christ and saying saying how is it that you as the one through whom all things were made, and we look at the glory of creation, and by whom all things exist, how is it that you who are eternal could love so deeply and be so humble that you would give up all of your divine majesty and that you would come to redeem me, that you would come to redeem this world? What kind of love is that? It's that revelation of the suffering love of Jesus that's a reflection of the love of the Father that's poured out through the love of the Spirit into our hearts. It's that revelation that leads to us letting our lives become inflamed with love for Jesus Christ. The whole church afflamed with love for Jesus Christ so that then we don't have to be told. We just pour ourselves out in the Jesus pattern. We live right, we hunger and we thirst Thirst for righteousness. We don't want to do anything. Paul says don't have anything to do with darkness. And we don't have to be told that. We just don't want it. Lord, get rid of immoral thoughts. Lord, get rid of temptation this. Lord, get rid of that. Lord, cleanse me. Keep me in the truth all the time. Lord, let me be as you are. It's a response to Jesus Christ. And it moves us then not only to to be righteous and to hunger for righteousness, but it moves us to offer our lives in worship and in service so that we bring the presence of the Lord to the poor and the marginalized. We bring the presence of the Lord to the hungry. We bring the presence of the Lord to the abused, to the war ravaged, to the lonely, to the scared, to the left out, to the trapped, to the unborn, to those under dictators. But maybe most of all, We bring the presence of the Lord to each other. To each other. When Jesus prays his high priestly prayer in John 17, his two great desires are for unity and love. That we would reflect to one another and to the world the oneness that's in God and the love that's in God. And he prays that our love for each other Our ability to be a community that forgives and forgives and forgives and forgives because we're all sinful human people and and forgives and forgives and forgives and blesses and stays one because of Jesus Christ would reflect to the world the glory of God. That's how we live as a royal priesthood. Friends, 250 years after Peter and John wrote these letters and after multiple waves of, of persecution, the Roman Emperor Constantine himself became a Christian and declared that Christianity was the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, it's debatable whether that was helpful or not to the Christian cause, but the point of it is that happened because a group of people reigned under pressure from the world, under pressure from the devil, reigned in righteousness and lived lives of worship and of intercession and of carrying the presence of God wherever they went. And so I want to ask us and just imagine again that what would it look like? What would what would the West Side, what would GR, what would the world look like? If all believers followed the Christ pattern, what would it look like? And just imagine back to that in the story of the volleyball coach at the beginning that the Lord wants to coach and encourage us right now and just to speak to us and to say, "You." are my children you are my sons and my daughters hold your heads high be confident in me be filled with me reflect me to the world around you live in a place of worship and adoration and intercession, and watch what I will do. The Lord gives us a picture of what he's going to do. And that picture is an invitation for us to join. That picture is Revelation 5, 9, and 10 that I read already, where he says, I'm gathering them from all nations. All people groups are going to be around that throne. And so we've got the joy of being a part of the many coming by the way that we offer our lives in response to the Lord. So I want to call the worship team forward now. We're going to sing a song of response called Take My Life. And I want to invite us to to surrender our lives afresh to the Lord and to not sing this song. Don't sing it too quickly. But do sing it. Do say, take my life, Lord, and let it be that wherever I go, your order comes. Wherever I go, worship goes. Wherever I go, your heart is moving me to prayer. And wherever I go, your presence goes. Take my life, Lord, and let it be. Let's. You can stand to sing, you can sit to sing, you can kneel to sing, as the Lord prompts you.